Today's reading comes from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning. Uh, your people are uh, united by something that is greater and bigger than biology or greater and bigger than common interest, but united together as one by your Spirit being made into a temple, the dwelling place of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would move among us as we hear your word read and as we seek to apply that word. We ask that you would move among us by your Holy Spirit. We confess our need this morning. So we ask that you would come, Lord, and do that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ City. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. Uh, if you missed uh, last week or, or previous weeks, uh, we're continuing this morning, it might not sound like it, but in our series uh, through the, the, the letter to the church in Galatia. And we're continuing this morning uh, looking at that. We're taking a pause this week and doing a deep dive into an application that we feel like comes naturally out of the text, an excursies, if you will. Uh, last week we heard Paul confront Peter, confront Peter, it says, in Antioch. Paul opposed Peter to his face. Why? Because Peter had pulled back from table fellowship with the Gentiles. And and we saw how Peter uh, could have justified this, right? Peter's mission was to the Jews, and so he didn't want to offend the Jews necessarily, and so he pulls back. But importantly, we we read last week, and, and we considered last week, that whenever we hesitate, interrupt, or end fellowship with another person on the basis of ethnicity or any other sort of prejudice, we proclaim something untrue about God and what he has done for us in Jesus. We are lying about the gospel. We are hypocrites. This morning, in the time we have together, I want to unpack this more fully. You see, and I'll give you a little, you know, little insider look here. What one of the, the the tricks of the trade in preaching, if you will, is to try to create some sort of tension. I try to to make the listener want to continue listening to you and not just sort of fade off and, and on their phone or like read like some Old Testament stories uh, in their Bible, right? So we try to create some tension. 
I try to make you want to continue listening. But I don't need to manufacture any tension around this topic this morning, do I? Like, this is very much at the forefront of our collective cultural imagination. Divisions forming along political, ethnic, religious, and socioeconomic lines are things that we are thinking about. Things we're being told about. In an increasingly globalized and diversifying world, we're looking to find this ideal of unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. And I don't think this is just a Christian thing. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I would bet that in your worldview, in your way of thinking, you have some vision, uh, utopian vision of how the world should work. You have some vision for unity in diversity. Uh, Michael Novak, he's a philosopher, a Catholic philosopher, but also a diplomat who traveled around the world. And, and he noted this. Unity in diversity is the highest possible attainment of a civilization, a testimony to the most noble possibilities of the human race. As you and I know, where things fall apart, however, is not just in the how of attaining unity in diversity, but in the why. In the why. Until recently, a popularly held notion is that unity in diversity just makes sense. Right? If we want to survive as a human race, right, exist on this, this planet, you know, orbiting the sun, we should just do it because it makes sense. Now, Franklin uh, Roosevelt, he wrote this. If civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together in the same world at peace. Uh, the slogan for the European Union is unity, or rather united in diversity. See, there's this real tangible feeling there that if the 28 member countries don't work together, that uh, their, their politics will be messed up, uh, their economies will be messed up. It just makes sense for us to work together in this. But if you've noticed, and, and my sense is you probably have, this pragmatic view of unity and diversity is falling out of favor. We don't hear it much anymore. It's largely being abandoned. The voices you and I hear on a daily basis are not unifying ones, uh, but divisive ones. If we so desire, we can watch television, we can go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. We can listen to the radio, all without the fear of encountering someone who thinks, looks, and acts differently than us. And that's on purpose. So what should the church's voice be in all this? What is our hope in this increasingly a tribalized, divisive world? I want to suggest this morning, in fact, I want to forcibly suggest this morning, that we need to proclaim the reality of how God makes unified the diverse in the person and work of Jesus. And what we'll find is that we only have hope for unity in diversity in the cross of Jesus Christ. Hear me. If we do not hear this voice clearly in the pages of Scripture, you and I, regardless of our ethnic background, will be swept up in the fear-mongering and the rhetoric that so temptingly plays into our sinful flesh and desires. So if you're taking notes, really simple outline for our time together this morning. First, 
I want to trace the, the biblical story and the story particularly of unity in diversity throughout the Bible beginning in, in Genesis. Uh, we'll, we'll culminate in, in the passage we heard read in Ephesians 2 where Paul says that now in Christ these walls of hostility have been broken down. So first I want to trace the biblical story of, of unity and diversity and, and where we're actually at in this world. And the second thing I want to do as we did with our excursions on remembering the poor, is just sort of flesh out some, some applications for us. What does this mean for us today? How can we move forward in love towards one another as those who are, yes, diverse, but unified in the person and work of Jesus? And before we dig in, before we open our Bibles, I want to add a few qualifiers this morning. And you can imagine there, there, there are quite a few I could say now. This is not an exhaustive examination of this topic. You will leave today with questions, and that is good. You will leave today thinking, I could have said this and this and this, and that's likely going to be true. This is not an exhaustive examination of the topic. I'd encourage you, go to community group and continue to have this conversation. Continue to discuss, continue to see how these ideas and and biblical truths are rooted in the lives of people, people you know. So first, this is not an exhaustive examination of this topic. Second, second, I fully recognize that my engagement with this topic has been mostly in the world of ideas, in the theoretical world. I know, because I've talked with a number of you over the past few weeks, that racism, classism, segregation is not an idea to you. It's been your lived experience. I was talking with a friend this week, and she's Chinese, and and I asked her, how have you experienced racism in your life? Now, this friend is, is a good friend of our family. She loves Jesus. She has a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And to be honest with you, I expected her to say something like, it hasn't really been a big deal. And what she told me deeply disturbed me. The racism that she had experienced, she said, the only places that that had actually happened and occurred was in her church and at her Christian school. And then she said, as a young girl, I wished I was a white girl. Like, let's just get this on the table. Never in my life have I thought that the difficulty I was experiencing would lessen if I was a different ethnicity? And I fully acknowledge that. Which is why it is so important this morning that we hear not from Jake and Jake's thoughts and thoughts formed in Jake's experience, but from God's word, what he has to say to us. And I think that what we'll find is that God's vision, the biblical vision for unity in diversity, is more beautiful, more profound, more redemptive, more compelling than anything you and I could come up with. And so if you have your Bibles, go with me to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we're going to read in verses uh, 26 to 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one at the back. If you have it on your phone, you can pull that up in app form. Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27. It says this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, and even verse 28, we have creation and coronation. Creation and coronation. Distinct from the rest of creation. Note that. Distinct from the rest of creation, God creates humanity, male and female, to be in covenant relationship with God as their creator. And hear this. There is no human rights. There is no even beginning to think about unity in diversity. There are no right-to-vote movements. There is no civil rights. If humanity is not believed to be distinct over and above the rest of creation, if you and I are no different than a giraffe, then we have no human rights, no inherent dignity, no inherent value and worth. See, if we possess no inherent value or worth, well, we should just join the new left or the alt-right and we'll be arbiters of who's in and who's out. In a sermon that Martin Luther King gave at Ebenezer Baptist Church in 1965, he said this, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And one day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. That is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. See, in Genesis 1, not only are we being created to be in covenant relationship with God, but it also, we see, defines our relationship to one another. See, we're created to mediate God's rule and reign as we spread across the earth. It's creation, yes, but, but, but coronation. Images of the king as we go, as we find ourselves all over the place. See, the rebellion of Adam and Eve not only fractures our covenant relationship with God, but it also fractures the most foundational thing that you and I have in common, our unified mediation of his kingship here on earth. It's not just a, a vertical fracture, though primarily it is. It's also a horizontal fracture. Freed, quote-unquote, from representing God's lordship, we now represent the sovereign self, our sovereign tribe. And perhaps nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the story of, of the Tower of Babel. If you go just to the right in your Bibles to Genesis 11, we find this in Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. The text literally reads, one lip, one words. The people of the entire earth are entirely unified by the same language and the same vocabulary. But notice, it's a different unity than the created intent. It, it's a unification not to make God's rule and reign and lordship known. No, it's a unification to make their own name great. The Genesis 11 verse 4 says, uh, talks about how these people come together for a singular, unified purpose. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, 
lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, this coming together was in direct rebellion of the command we find in Genesis 9-1 where the people were to spread throughout the earth. Instead, they say, no, 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 let's group together. And let's group together for our namesake, for our glory, for our fame, utilizing technology to, to make us a big deal. So what does God do? Well, verse 8 begins, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Friends, we are not just looking for any unity in diversity. Just any common ground. See, the builders of of Babel, the people uh, on that plain, they were united. Uh, United in a way that would make the United Nations blush. Like, they were united. But they were united in proud opposition to God. And so the Lord confuses them. He sends them over the face of the earth. uh, Confuses their language. And note this. Just as our clothes and the clothes that you're wearing today remind us of our garden rebellion and the shame we brought into this world through rejecting God's rule and reign, so too do our multitude of languages, as beautiful as they are, remind us of humanity's proud rebellion against God. This visible reminder of what happens when we come together in opposition to Him, to His Lordship. This is not the unity of diversity that we're looking for. Now, if we go to Genesis chapter 12, and I promise we're not going like one chapter at a time, you're like, oh no, it's going to take forever. But if we go to Genesis chapter 12, we find something else happening. We, we catch a glimpse of God uniting his people around something that lasts. His glory. His name. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we find the call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's promise to Abraham is that he will make Abraham's name great. That he will bring a people from Abraham. A nation of blessing that is to be a blessing to the whole earth. And here we find the seed of this biblical vision for unity in diversity. That through one distinct nation, one distinct nation, all nations might become unified in their worship and love for the one true God who made them. And so last week, last week, if you remember, I suggested that potentially these men who came from James quoted something like Leviticus 20, verses 24 and 26. I read this last week and I'll read it again here. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And in a sense, these men from James are right. In a sense, they understand their purpose. How? If God's people cease to be distinct, they would cease to be a blessing to the nations. In a world of of countless deities and despicable, wicked, pagan ritual, Israel 
in its set-apartness, was to be a beacon of salvation to all tribes and nations, unity in diversity. But they fail. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that they fail. They fall prey to the same nationalistic pride that ultimately will infect every earthly kingdom. And no more clearly is this seen in, in the life and ministry of the prophet Jonah. I don't know if you know about Jonah. Uh, if it's your first time here and you don't know about Jonah, let me tell you about Jonah. Uh, Jonah was, was called by God to bring a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh uh, was not an Israelite city, was, was not a God-fearing city. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It, it was a mega city of pagans. Like, all the pagans got together, and it was a monument to paganism. Like, it was, it was insane, the things that would happen in Nineveh. And, and Jonah says, uh-uh, don't want to go to Nineveh. And he runs. He, he, he flees. He stows away on a ship. But when a God-sent storm threatens the safety of the ship, Jonah is asked by the crew about himself. Listen to how Jonah responds in Jonah 1 verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. See, the order of Jonah's response matters. Jonah was asked in this order what his mission was, what his country was, and who his people were. But even though it was asked last, Jonah decides to begin his answer with what he considers to be most important, his race. I am a Hebrew. Uh, Tim Keller, he writes this, Jonah's relationship with God was not as basic to his significance as his race. That is why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seemed to be in conflict, he chose to support his nation over taking God's love and message to a new society. And Jonah's nationalism didn't end with him. We find that same nationalism in the world of the New Testament in the various Jewish political parties that we find. A people of blessing turned inward. But God's promises would not be thwarted. There would be unity and diversity. There would be all nations' blessings from Abraham's line, and it would be brought about in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus a Jewish man from the line of Abraham, indeed the Son of God, dies on the cross for who? Well, as we heard read this morning, both Jew and Gentile, Ninevite and Israelite. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 2. Let's look at it again. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13 says this. And therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In verse 13, But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Gifts, blessings, a chief among them salvation, were exclusively Israel's. Israel's to be shared. But now, in the death of Jesus, we're told, Gentiles have been brought near. And this idea of being brought near comes from this, this ancient thought of, of bringing a Gentile proselyte, a Gentile convert, into the people of God, into the commonwealth of Israel. But in this passage, this phrase is, is transformed. See, you and I have been brought near, not into the commonwealth of Israel, 
but into a new community that transcends Israel. A, a new community where Jew, Gentile are on equal footing. Paul continues by telling us how Jesus does this. Look again with me at your Bibles. Ephesians 2, verse 14, all the way to verse 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, listen, one new man in place of the two, and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, Jesus' death on the cross pays the penalty for sin that no Jewish custom, no, no Jewish ordinance could ever do. That Jesus' death on the cross also pays the penalty for sin that no Gentile scheming and thinking could ever do. Jew, Gentile, sinner alike, he unites not only to one another, but to one another in him. Friends, this is the work of the cross. This is our hope for racial reconciliation. The cross tells Jew, Gentile, Chinese, European, African, that their race or ethnicity is not enough to save them. But the cross tells Jew, Gentile, Chinese, European, African, that one man has died in order to bring them into one new humanity. This is the work of the cross. Vertical, yes, but also horizontal. It's both. See, the beauty of our reconciliation with God and the resolution of our hostile relationship on the vertical plane with him is that we can't be reconciled to him. Hear this. We cannot be reconciled to him without the horizontal hostility between you and I also being dealt with. It's both. Now, William Carey, he was a missionary from England to India. William Carey, sometimes called the father of modern missions, he refused to baptize people who upheld the caste system. Carey recognized that a system that perpetuated terrible hardship and located worth in what family you were born into was incompatible with the gospel. Carey understood, yes, a vertical hostility being dealt with, but also a horizontal hostility between peoples being dealt with. He understood Ephesians 2.16, us both to God in one body through the cross. The horizontal and the vertical working in tandem. Friends, our, our primary identity marker this morning is not European or, or Chinese or, or Mennonite or, or, or Pentecostal. Our primary identity marker this morning is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That is first. And it matters that that is first. We are in Christ. Together, reconciled to Christ. Indeed, Paul continues in the text we heard read to say that this new race, this new humanity in Jesus is like a temple being built, filled with God's Spirit. It's the church. A church that will one day worship Jesus. A church that will one day, at the end of the age, look like this. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the biblical story. God's vision for unity in diversity. Then and only then, when we're face to face with our Creator, made perfect, made new, then and only then will our longing for unity in diversity be fully realized. When we together, men, women, every tribe, every language, every tongue, come and worship, not with a multitude of voices, but with one voice, the Jesus who is our King. And so the question this morning is how do we help the church here on earth look like the church that will one day exist in heaven? How, how do we live this out now? How, what do we do? In an increasingly polarized world, how do we move forward? I want to humbly suggest four things. Again, not an exhaustive list. I hope that's like glaringly obvious. Four things. Four things I think we can be about as a community, the church of Jesus. First, and this is key, we need to daily remind ourselves of this story and where we are at in it. If this story isn't true, you have every ground, every reason to retreat into your tribal enclave. Every right. But if this story is true, how can you go back to your former ways? To see this perhaps even more specifically in a way that might, we might feel it a bit, I want to use the, the example of, of, the, uh, of housing in Vancouver. Just a light example. For those of you who've lived in Vancouver all of your life, or perhaps most of your life, you've seen a city transformed. Transformed. A city transformed not only in the buildings, but in its ethnic makeup, and perhaps most notably, in its housing prices. And you felt that. Your neighborhood is changing, and not in a way that you like. How are you going to respond? How have you already responded? Do you carry animosity, bitterness, anger, resentment towards people who don't look like you in the city? Do you decry their presence in our city on Facebook, telling them to go back where they came from? Do you gather with other people who look like you and think like you and stoke the fire, make snide comments? This tribal and racist sentiment only grows when we've lost the gospel story. When we're grounded in the gospel of the unity in Christ, and your hope isn't in Vancouver, your hope isn't in your neighborhood, your hope isn't in your city looking and feeling a certain way, but is grounded in the coming of a heavenly city, you are free to love sacrificially. Did you see that, Christ City? You are free to let go of resentment and open your homes because Jesus has loved an outsider like you. Because Jesus has been hospitable to a Gentile like you. 
Because Jesus has brought to himself one new humanity from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And at the end of the age, don't forget the story. Jesus will bring foreigners like us to worship him in an eternal home. There is nothing wrong with nostalgia. There is nothing wrong, hear me please, with enjoying and appreciating your culture. Please don't mishear me. But when that nostalgia turns into resentment, it is exposed for the idol that it really is. And it needs to be repented of. It needs to be rooted out of our lives. If we want to combat, indeed kill, racism, segregation, and tribalism, friends, we need to tune out the narratives that we are daily being bombarded with. Like, we spend so much time listening to CNN and Fox, or the New York Times, or Breitbart, or whatever you, whatever you read, we spend so much time reading those and buying to those narratives that we've lost the plot. We, we've forgotten that there's, there's a city coming that's going to look a lot different than this. That our hope isn't here. That our hope isn't Jesus. Have you lost the plot this morning, friends? Have you lost the gospel story? That's the first thing we need to do. Second, we need to actively work as a church to image, not only in our congregations, but in our leadership, the type of unified diversity that we'll experience in heaven. It has been very, very helpful for me to understand that just because Christ City is not a quote-unquote ethnic church, it doesn't mean that we are without a culture. Now, that might sound obvious to some of you who noticed that when you first came in, but for people who look like me, that might come as a surprise. It surprised me. There are some things we do as a community that are very white and very European. Things that have, perhaps, commonality with other cultures, but also things that might be entirely different. And for example, for some of you, it is very weird that I'm standing up here right now without a suit jacket on. And if you want to buy me one, I am open to that idea, right? <laughs> Just got to have like a hundred suit jackets next week. I'll wear them all. It'll be great. Right? That, that might be strange to, to, to some of you, right? On the weeks that we can find a drummer, it might be strange to you that we have a drummer, Right? It might be strange to you that following our gathering, we don't have a fellowship time with triangle sandwiches and cucumbers, right? That might be strange to you. It might really be strange to you that a young guy like me could be up here right now talking about something like this. He needs at least 30, 40 more years, right? We get that all these things, all these ideas come, at least in some part, from a particular cultural perspective. Now, we will never be an a-cultural people. We will never be a people that are without some sort of cultural influence. But there are things that we can do that are mindful, us being mindful of our brothers and sisters at Christ City, South Vancouver, who are different than us. And I'm just going to list a few. Again, not exhaustive. One thing we could do. We are committing ourselves as a teaching team to preach intelligibly, clearly, and at a pace that recognizes that some of you, for some of you, English is not your first language. We are committed as a teaching team and as a leadership team to tell stories and read books and quote Christians from other ethnicities and cultures, believing that they can teach us something. 
We are committed to teaching and discussing, as you've seen in these past few weeks, various social issues. Recognizing that many minorities have not had the luxury of ignoring them. And that the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus compels us to do acts of mercy and to think justly. And to this list we should add, by God's grace, we are seeking to cultivate ethnic diversity in our leadership. At Daryl Williamson, he's an African-American pastor in the U.S., and he recently oversaw the merger of a predominantly black congregation and a predominantly white congregation. And in this video I watched where he, where he talked about this, he said this about cultivating ethnic diversity in, in leadership. If our leadership is not diverse, it makes us suspect this broader aim. It seems to indicate, especially in a society where there is history of ethnic hierarchy, that if we find ourselves being monocultural in leadership, we don't really value God-glorifying diversity when it comes to power and authority. We don't want to express that ethnic diversity really matters at its core. Friends, I want to invite you this morning to join me in prayer. By God's grace and his gracious provision, we've seen a diverse group of service team leaders. And we want to ask him for continued provision in this area as we appoint deacons and elders in training and eventually elders. See, ultimately, this is not about some sort of, of, of forced, manufactured diversity. This is about us looking like the community that we're serving in. See, the temptation of, of urban churches like ours, where there are so many options, is that we simply rally around expressions of worship that we are comfortable with. If we're going to be for South Vancouver, committed to reaching the people of South Vancouver, this will result in us looking like South Vancouver. And we have much work to do in this area. I don't want to gloss over it. Third thing. Failure to speak clearly the biblical story to any form of segregation or racism or tribalism is anti-gospel. And being anti-gospel is being anti-Great Commission. I'll say something that's very obvious. Segregationists make terrible missionaries. Segregationists make terrible missionaries. As we spent this morning seeing, the gospel is a message of walls of hostility being broken down both vertically, yes, but also horizontally. And we can't have one without the other. Timothy Cho, he writes this, Racism, therefore, is an attempt to rebuild that wall of hostility between peoples. It is an insidious attempt to undo the finished work of Christ at the core it is an anti-gospel. He continues to say, Racism, ethnocentricity, and racial supremacy are essentially centripetal, always flowing inward into one race, ethnicity, or people group at the expense and disenfranchisement of others. It is an attempt to reverse the direction of the Great Commission back into ourselves. Friends, if we want to be about the Great Commission, we need to be about the gospel. If we want to be about the gospel, we need to be committed to this. Fourth thing. Finally, we need to do all of this in humility, grace, and a willingness to learn from each other. Uh, Francis Chan, uh, in his book, Letters to the Church, 
Uh, he writes about a conversation he had with, with a Chinese house church leader. And he asks them, it's a very Western question, what are your core values, right? What are your core values? And, and he says, um, well, the Chinese house church leader says, well, you know, prayer, word of God, you know, we're tracking so far, we get these, prayer, word of God, uh, evangelism, yeah, okay, okay, nice, 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 we're on board with that. Uh, a regular expectation of miracles, whoa, 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 okay, a little bit, okay. But, you know, we can maybe get on board with that. And the fifth one, the fifth one really caught him off guard. Fifth one, he said, I don't want to misquote this. He said this, our fifth value was embracing suffering for the glory of Christ. I don't know about you. I have not been on a church website in the West that has that on their vision board. Like maybe you have, and you know about these faithful churches that I don't know about. I've seen ones with like, you know, fair trade coffee and, you know, locally roasted as a vision, right? Which is great, I guess. We need to be good listeners. Friends, do we have something to learn from our Chinese house church brothers and sisters? Yes. Yes. A thousand times, yes. We have to be good listeners. How much better off, how much more God-glorifying would the church in the West be to have our Chinese house church brothers and sisters speak into our lives on a regular basis? See, for them, it was their lived experience. To not talk about suffering would be to, to miss one of the clear applications of the gospel as they literally flee persecution. We have to be good listeners. We have something to teach one another. And I'll close with this. If this conversation is not had in the church, in love, hospitality, and charity, preferably over food, it will quickly begin to mirror the conversation the world is having and it will fracture and divide the church and our gospel witness will be ruined. That's what's at stake here, friend. I'm not naive. Wounds brought about by racial and ethnic divisions, historical wounds, won't be healed by simply increasing diversity or by instituting a program. He'll take intentional action and desire from each member of this body. Intentional moving towards one another, not in self-protection, not in self-preservation, because I like it this way and this way we've always done it, but in self-giving for the sake of the other. It'll take open hearts, a lot of repenting and forgiveness. And there should be no safer place to do all this than in the body of Jesus Christ. De'Aaron Washington, he's at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. He wrote this. Racial reconciliation is only achieved by intentional action. It takes more than sharing space. It takes sharing our hearts. We can go to church with each other, have many conversations, and even break bread together without understanding one another. Diversity is essential for racial reconciliation, but it demands more than diversity. The church in the States in the 1830s was diverse. White people sat in the pews, and the black people sat on the ground. Church in Rome, Ephesus, was diverse. But there was no racial rec reconciliation. It is not enough this morning for us to have an ethnically diverse row or an ethnically diverse community group. We need to cultivate deep friendships and love one another across ethnic and racial barriers. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And that's the point. Jesus doesn't just tolerate us. He doesn't just 
put up with us. He doesn't just save us and say, okay, you can kind of tag along, but uh, you're kind of different. Jesus adopts us into his family. He calls us his children. There is no more intimate language that Jesus could use than being invited into the triune God. He calls us his own. See, Jesus' work on the cross is what will bring unity from diversity now as we work hard to do this and forevermore. Would you stand as we respond this morning?